0: It's my honor to introduce our keynote, and I'm going to give him the full measure of his intro so that we can turn the stage over. So please bear with me and listen close. The Reverend Dr. William J. Barber II is a pastor. Yes. Right out the gates, you know. So, okay, good. Church then. I said his name. Well done. The Reverend Dr. William J. Barber II. is a pastor and social justice advocate building a broad-based grassroots movement grounded in the moral tenets of faith-based communities and the Constitution to confront systemic racism, poverty, environmental devastation, the war economy, and the distorted moral narrative of religious nationalism in America today. As pastor of Greenleaf Christian Church in Greensboro, North Carolina since 1993, and president of the North Carolina Conference of the NAACP from 2005 to 2017, Barbara approaches social justice through the lens of the ethical and moral treatment of people as laid out in the Christian Bible, the Reconstruction and Civil Rights Movement of the South, and the United States Constitution. He is effective at building unusually inclusive fusion coalitions that are multiracial and interfaith, reaching across race, gender, age, and class lines, and dedicated to addressing poverty, inequality, and systemic racism. When his work came to expand voting rights, health care, living wages, immigrant rights, public education, and LGBTQ rights— When his work was thwarted by extremist state lawmakers in North Carolina, Barber began a series of Moral Monday rallies outside the statehouse in Raleigh to protest laws that suppress voter turnout, cut funding for public education and health care, and further disenfranchise poor white, black, First Nation, and LGBTQ communities. The Moral Monday's rallies and associated nonviolent acts of civil disobedience grew to involve tens of thousands of participants across North Carolina and spread to states across the South. The movement waged successful legal challenges to voter suppression and racial gerrymandering, winning twice at the Supreme Court. Winning twice at the Supreme Court. In 2014, Barber founded Repairs of the Breach, a leadership organization developed to expand and build a national movement rooted in moral analysis, moral articulation, and moral action. In 2016, he led a moral revival tour that covered 26 states and attracted thousands. In 2017, he and colleagues launched a revival of the 1968 Poor People's Campaign that was spearheaded by Dr. Dart Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and many others. Beginning with an audit of systemic racism, poverty, ecological devastation, and the war economy in the U.S. since 1968, the campaign has been recast for the 21st century, building state and local nonpartisan fusing movements committed to shifting the moral narrative, building power, and challenging laws and policies that hurt the poor and threaten our democracy. In 2018, the Poor People's Campaign launched 40 days of moral, nonviolent, civil disobedience in 40 states and in Washington, D.C., resulting in over 5,000 acts of simultaneous civil disobedience in 36 state capitals and the U.S. Capitol. (laughs) Merging moral and activist traditions, Barbara is providing a faith-based framework for action that strengthens civic engagement and inspires the country to imagine a more humane society. William Barber received a B.A. in 1985 from North Carolina Central University, a Master of Divinity in 1989 from Duke University, and a Doctorate of Ministry in 2003 from Drew University. He also received seven honorary doctorate degrees From 2006 to 2017, Barber was president of the North Carolina chapter of the NAACP and has been a member of the National Board since 2005. He's a distinguished visiting professor at Union Theological Seminary. His publications include the co-authored books, Forward Together, A Moral Message for the Nation, The Third Reconstruction, Moral Mondays, Fusion Politics, and the Rise of a New Justice Movement, and Revive Us Again, Vision and Action in Moral Organizing. He's a contributing op-ed writer for the New York Times, CNN, MSNBC, and the Washington Post. Barber's is a 2018 MacArthur Fellow, a 2018 Tar Heel of the Year, an Auburn Seminary Senior Fellow, and holds the visiting social justice chair at St. John's University. We are so lucky, so blessed, so gifted with his presence. Please show your love, your undying love, for the Reverend Dr. William J. Barber II.
1: While you're standing, would you join me in saying, forward together, together. not one step back. Come on, say it louder. Forward together, together. not one step back. back. Forward 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 together, not one step back. Give yourselves a big hand for being here today. I am deeply humbled and to be invited to be here and to be with such a body as this in times like this I'm so thankful to the grace of God and the spirit of the universe to brother John Power where is he somewhere in here let's give it up and the <laughs> institute and to all of you who are gathered I want to ask you to go to www.breachrepairs.org, Repairs of the Breach, and make sure you sign up to get connected and to also click on the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival um, icon. And also, if you would take down 90975 and text moral, that's three things to do. Go to www.breachrepairers.org. Click on that so you're connected with Repairers of the Breach, where I'm the president and senior lecturer. Uh, Hook up with us on Twitter and otherwise. And then go to your phones and do 90975 at some time today and click in Morrow. We the people... Must refuse to be otherwise, otherized and ignored. We, the people, must refuse to be otherized and ignored. If my spirit seems a little somber today, it is because. Yesterday, the ninth, and some people forget this, would have been the day that Martin Luther King was buried 51 years ago. And in his last sermon on the evening before he was shot down by a vicious system that produced an assassin outside the Lorraine Hotel in Memphis, Tennessee, Dr. King offered a conclusion that serves us well as a starting point for how we understand our work, our callings in this moment in 2019. Now, oftentimes when we remember Dr. King, we make some fatal errors. One is that we remember him like he was some lone individual and not deeply committed to movement and movement building and organizing. Two, we remember the end of his various sermons like I have a dream or I've been to the mountaintop and I've looked over Dr. Kim but we don't, and, and for reasons that corporate America has chosen to keep us from doing it, we don't look at the substance of what he was saying and the radical nature of what he was saying. I was just at the monument last week. And if you go in my fraternity, helped place that monument there. But if you look at that monument, none of his most radical quotes are there. Well, that won't happen today. <laughs> 51 years ago, April the 3rd, Dr. King preached and he said this America is a sick nation. And then he said, We must give ourselves to the struggle. For wholeness until the end. And nothing would be more tragic than for us to stop at this point. We must see it through and we must recognize we either go up together or we go down together. This is the Martin Luther King, the PhD who was a preacher who was standing with sanitation workers over against even many members of his staff. This was the Martin Luther King that was engaged with welfare rights workers and Jewish persons and others, many others, Cesar Chavez and others who were planning the Poor People's Campaign. This is the Martin Luther King that was standing with sanitation workers who were resisting political and economic otherization with the simple slogan, I am a man. Dr. King at that time had named three evils, yes he called it evil, that constantly work to divide and otherize people. Racism, poverty, and militarism. And he saw them as a triune, evil collusion that could not be understood by separating any one from the other. And by the way, this was not the first time he had made the connection. If you go back to some of his sermons at his church in 58, one of them was... Paul's letter to American Christians and he talked about the dangers of greedy, gone run amok capitalism and, and, and economic injustice and war this was the king who knew one could not challenge one of these evils without challenging them at all, this was the king who understood that we must have a kind of eternal discontent with the demonic forces of racism, poverty, and militarism. Fifteen, fifty-one 51 years ago, however, Martin Luther King Jr. didn't live 24 hours after he said nothing would be more tragic than for us to turn back now. None of us could have imagined when he was murdered that he would become a martyr in the struggle, and he was a martyr in the struggle for the beloved community and a multi-ethnic democracy, that somehow after his assassination, he would within a half a century achieve the status of a founding father on the National Mall. King had been the target of J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI, When he named these three evils, President Johnson took his open invitation to the the White House. When he named these three evils, church people put him out. His own denomination walked away from him. Civil rights organizations and foundations walked away from him. Because he constantly questioned Systems that marginalize, diminish the place and humanity of some people. He questioned the violence of war and a war economy. He questioned the evil of racism and poverty. And that's why. On today, the day right after he would have been buried yesterday, I had to remember this because we can never speak of his legacy without recognizing how he showed us that the America's experiment in democracy always and will always require radical struggle to move us toward a more perfect union. His was a radical witness that everybody was, is made in the imago Dehi, the image of God, the image of the eternal. And everybody has a place in the beloved community. And he knew some words and an ethic that in 2019, we better know, nothing would be more tragic than for us to turn back from the fight for humanity now. Nothing. <laughs> now, to be sure, we find a similar vision in our Declaration of Independent and Constitutional Ideals, even though the white men who signed their names to those documents never were truly faithful to them. And yet, We can never give up on demanding what this country has said on paper. (laughs) Dr. King said it like this, if you didn't mean it, you shouldn't have written it down. (laughs) Because what any people puts down on paper can become a basis for public accountability. A nation founded in revolution must always remain open to reassessment and new revolutions in every era in order to hold... In order to fight for the full humanity of all people. And so every now and then, since we ought to go back to those documents, like the one that was written 243 years ago, July 4th, 1776, we hold these truths to be self evident that all men, mistake right there, all men are created equal. <laughs> they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted. But then I love this line, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute a new government. You want to have a conversation about conservative interpretation of the Constitution, Where well, here it is. We have the right to alter any political system whenever it becomes dangerous and detrimental to the principles of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for everyone. That is why later on, Frederick Douglass would say in the 1800s, when asked about the 4th of July, he said, you asked me about your celebration? Well, let me tell you about your celebration. It is fraud, bombay, bombay bass. it is wrong. It is a cover up for evil until you do right by the sons and daughters of slaves. And I would say till you do right by all people. Or 1787, 232 years ago, we the people of the United States, in order to form let me just put a pause here and say to my friends, I don't know what you call yourselves radicals, revolutionaries, liberals, whatever you are, but stop letting the so-called extremists have the constitution. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. There is nowhere in the Constitution where freedom is mentioned. And the conversation about liberty does not even come until after four moral criteria are met. Otherwise, you do not have a liberty that's worthy to be passed on. And that is, number one, the establishment of justice. And number two, domestic tranquility, not domestic division. And number three, providing for the common defense, not just the defense of a few lobbyists. And number four, to promote, here comes that word, most of us won't say it anymore today, the general welfare. Some of you are scared to say, try it one time, say welfare. You you let these folk make you throw away the language that is ours. And any pretense about liberty that does not establish justice does not provide for the common defense that divides people rather than pulls them together and that undermines the promoting of the general welfare is contrary to what was put on paper. That's why Fannie Lou Hamer in 1964 55 years ago at the Democratic Convention said I was in jail when they murdered mega evers and many of us have had to deal with death threats and our phones being tapped and and all kinds of brutality just because we want the right to vote and if this is America then I question America there must be a remnant that is always willing to question America or like Rabbi Heschel Rabbi Heschel, who in 1963, just before the March on Washington, wrote to John F. Kennedy. And the rabbi said, Mr. President, America forfeits the right to worship God until you do right by the Negro. Period. Or, Coretta Scott King, who after her husband's murder went on a tour during the days between the funeral and then afterwards. And somebody asked, Mother Coretta said, "Um, your husband was shot and murdered. Tell us about what what, what is violence to you? She said, well, violence is my husband's murder, but violence is so much more. She said, poverty can produce a most deadly kind of violence. She said, in a society, violence against poor people and minority groups is routine. She says, I remind you that starving a child is violence. Suppressing a culture is violence. Neglecting school children is violence. Discrimination against working people is violence. Ghetto housing is violence. Ignoring medical needs and healthcare is violence. Contempt for equality is violence. And watch this, even a lack of willpower and an apathetic spirit that refuses to challenge these other forms of violence is itself violent. So sometimes the question for us is, are we going to be on the side of violence or nonviolence? In this moment, moment we in the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for a moral revival, believes we are in the midst and we must have in this nation a third reconstruction. We must find a way to make clear today that the moral and constitutional crisis we face in America is not just about Republicans versus Democrats or liberal versus conservative. It is really instead about fundamental right against wrong, fundamental humanity, who we will write off and who we will include. We are in a struggle for the heart and soul of this nation. For years to come in a real sense right now we face a question and we're not the first ones but it is our time to face it and that question is whether or not America can be whether or not the, at least the ideals of the constitution written by flawed men can even be amended and can be can, uh, can, be, can survive because you know for a half century now Political operatives who paved the way for Trumpism used Richard Nixon's southern strategy to pit black, brown, and white people against one another. They have hijacked our moral narrative to frame narrow cultural differences as the only moral issue in public life. And they've tried to paint the resistance to their con- consolidation of power as anti-American or socialism. And we cannot remain silent while America's experiment in democracy is being trampled in front of our faces. We must have a movement, a moral fusion movement, because not only have extremists done that, many times progressives have chosen to seek how can we find a messiah political campaign to say, candidate to save us rather than build a movement that will transform the entire political landscape of this nation? Because you do know that Trump is not America's biggest problem. I knew I wouldn't get too much agreement with that. But the reality is, if you think this is the first time we've had a racist president, evidently you haven't read. If you think this is the first time we've had an Islamophobe, a xenophobe, a homophobe in the White House, you haven't read. You missed a whole lot of history classes. Neil Painter, that Princeton scholar, says, Trump is the iconography of a too often repeated American reality. We take a few steps forward and then we go backwards. Trump benefits from an audience that's been prepared for more than 50 years. Kevin Phillips, when he wrote it for Richard Nixon, said, listen, if we're going to win in the days to come, he said, here's a plan to win the country, to control the country without having a majority of the votes for the next 50 years. But you got to learn how to pit black and white and brown poor people against one another. And you can't use straight-up racial language, so you got to come up with code language. And Lee Atwater described what that code language was. You don't say, nigga, can't do that after 1954, 55, 56. So what you talk about is force busing, entitlement reform, gay people, prayer in the school, vouchers for private school. And then you get real clever and you talk about tax cuts which is all nothing but code words because those policies hurt blacks worse than whites, but it also makes many poor whites think that their problems are because of black and brown people. Thereby you split and you split and you keep the 13 southern states split. Why? Because if you can control the 13 southern states in any presidential election, you start with 178, 70 plus electoral votes. Which means you only need 99 from the other 37 states. If you can use this otherization politically, you can control 31% of the United States House of Representatives by just controlling the 13 southern states from Maryland to Texas. and You can control 26 members of the United States Senate, means you only need 25 from the other 37 states. If you know this history, you understand why Trump is continuing to play to what he's playing and why it's not just him but his enablers. I've used this, and some people said I might not ought to use it, but I think it's fairly analogous to what we're seeing. Maybe it helps people because it shocks you to see what I'm trying to say. Because every, I know most of the folk in here in this room think, if we just have the right election, I'm not saying we ought not get rid of him. I'm not saying he ought not, you know, go home to Malego or somewhere. I'm not saying that. But I, want, I do want to say in this room, if you think that's all we need to deal with, that it's just about one person, that is a misdiagnosis of the otherization that is going on right now. Because huh. some people would be glad to get rid of him because they've already used him for what they wanted him for. The Supreme Court, the tax cuts, da 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 So what you have to understand is, how many of y'all ever had a cold? A bad cold? Raise your hand. Nobody here had a bad cold? I can't hardly see for these lies. I mean, a bad, this man over here ain't never had a cold. Y'all need to learn him. He <laughs> He never had a cold in his life. Everybody had a bad cold. Everybody ever had to sneeze. Everybody just had some come out when you sneeze. Okay, that's what Trump is. And that's what his enablers are. They are the symptom of a sickness. And if you're gonna treat the cold or flu, you don't, you wipe the symptom. But you got to get some medicine that gets down in your vein and in your bloodline if you're really gonna deal with a serious. You got to find out what is it that's poisoning the bloodline that's causing the symptoms in the first place. Whew. And so we must have a movement, I believe, that is committed. If we're gonna really deal with otherization. To take on the five interlocking injustices and evils that thrive on and produce more otherizations. The first one is, we must deal with the issue of systemic racism. To all my brothers and sisters, white, black, and brown, and otherwise, if we, are, if we don't want to deal with systemic racism, we really don't want to deal with otherizations. And systemic racism is not just about what it does to black people, but as one of my friends, Jonathan Metzall, now talks about, you know, people who are dying from whiteness, right? And, and, and I'm not talking about cultural racism. I'm so sick of that conversation where somebody says the N-word or somebody talks about somebody's calves being too big. That's ugly. That's grotesque. But that's not the real racism. In fact, the truth of the matter is in this culture, there's a new book that has come out that makes it plain in this culture, Racism didn't start with cultural antics and grotesque statements. Racism started with systems of injustice and then the grossness and the words followed as justification for the political racism. Real racism is not about what's in your heart. It's about what's in your policies. You can sit beside me every day and never call me the N-word or never call me something negative, but work every day on policies that have a disparate impact and othering impact on my life. And so we got to deal with systemic racism if we're going to really deal with otherization. Systemic racism, systemic racism, systemic racism, like voter suppression. No, that's the wrong term. Racist voter suppression. L- when you lead this conference, don't ever call it voter suppression anymore. Call it what it is, racist voter suppression. Voter suppression is directly targeted at black and brown folk to undermine the ability for black, brown, and white folk to build coalitions, racist voter suppression. And guess what? Long before Trump even started talking about birtherism, 26 states since 2008, 9, 10 passed racist gerrymandering, racist voter suppression, and and we have constantly seen our... Uh, uh, presidential elections in in two thousand in the in the two, in the twenty first century be impacted by the electoral college, one of the last vestiges of the politics of a slave nation that works in collusion to keep extremists in office, racist voter suppression, redistricting, gerrymandering. There are racist voter suppression. Every state of those 13 states I mentioned, has engaged in racist voter suppression. Now here's the irony, my brothers and sisters. You want to talk about a real irony of evil or a real ugliness of evil. We did a study in the Poor People's Campaign, and we looked at all the states that had passed racist voter suppression laws. And then we mapped those states based on poverty, based on women's rights, Based on LGBTQ rights, based on labor rights, based on health care, based on living wage. And guess what? Every state that has engaged in racist voter suppression laws, those laws have allowed people to get elected who, who once they get elected, they pass policies that hurt mostly white people. I go to conferences all the time, and people are talking about issues, and they act as though voter suppression is is just a black issue. It's targeted at black and brown people. But understand racism is ultimately against humanity. The same states that are voter suppression states denied health care expansion. The same states that are voter suppression states have the highest levels of child poverty and women in poverty. The same states that engaged in racist voter suppression block living wages and labor rights. The same states that that pass racist voter suppression laws have the weakest laws to support the LGBTQ community. So you cannot be concerned about all these other issues. And not be fundamentally concerned about America's original sin that continues to be perpetrated through things like racist voter suppression, resegregation in high poverty schools, mass incarceration, the constant racist badgering of our immigrant brothers and sisters where now it's becoming okay. For people to use terminology to, 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 to promote racist policies against our immigrant brothers and sisters that could very well be lifted from transcripts of Hitler. And don't forget the constant racist attack on our First Nation and Native people who experienced the first genocide in this land. There is no way to fight otherization without dealing with systemic racism. But not only that, if we're going to deal with systemic racism, we've also got to deal with the reality of systemic poverty. Somebody say systemic poverty. Systemic poverty, systemic poverty. Systemic poverty. Systemic poverty. Right now in this country, there are 140 million poor people. Don't you ever believe the government stat again that says it's only 37, 40 million people? When you look at the poor, poverty and low wealth, there are 140 million people that are being othered as poor and low wealth. That's 43.5% of this nation. That's 60% of black people, which is 26 million black people. That's 33% of white people, but 66 million white people, which means that 40 million more white people are poor per capita than black, even though 60% of black people are poor and low wealth. In the richest nation in the world, in this nation, 400 of the wealthiest Americans own more wealth than the bottom 64%, 400 families earn an average of $97,000 an hour while they will lock you up in this country for going in the street for 15 and a union. Now I hear some of you saying, "But Reverend Barber, we 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 hear these facts. Why the facts? Because most people don't know it, and we are accepting the otherization. And we and too many people don't understand that the real crisis is not the our border. You know, because really, they didn't. The people in Mexico didn't cross the border. We our borders crossed them in the 1800s. If I can tell the truth." when Texas wanted to keep its slaves and Mexico was anti-slavery before Texas, that's why as a black man and a Tuscaroing Indian, you ain't gonna never get me to be against Latino people because I know who wanted my freedom first. You can't run that game on me. Mm -mm. But the real emergency is not at the border, it's in the borders. The poverty, the lie about scarcity, the damn lie about scarcity. huh? There's no scarcity when we want to give 2 and $3 trillion tax cuts to those who don't need it. Huh? Over the years, th- last 30 years, Dr. King was talking about poverty and, and, and 50 years ago, and the word poverty has also be, almost been erased from our national dialogue. We had 26 presidential debates in 2016, Democrat and Republican, and not one of them was on systemic racism or poverty. Not one, with 43.5% of the people of this country living in poverty. And over the last three years, rents have gone up faster than income in nearly every urban area in this country. Since 2010, the affordable housing stock has declined by 60%. In 2016, listen, there was no state in America or county in this nation where somebody earning the federal minimum wage of 725 could afford a two bedroom apartment at market rate. Nowhere in America. Nowhere. In most places, you'd have to work 80 to 84 hours a week just to earn a basic two-room apartment, and there are 500,000, over half million people experiencing homelessness every night in the richest nation in the world with empty houses everywhere. And of this population, 41% are black, 47% are white. 2.5 to 3.5 million people are sheltered homeless. 7.4 million are estimated on the brink of homelessness. The largest number of women and young people are LGBTQ youth who represent 20 to 40% of the homeless population. And yet every time a presidential caravan comes into a city they make sure they take the route around. And sometimes even even, even, even we do. We come to our conferences straight from the airport, straight to the hotel, and never even see, we're never even shown a picture of what it's really like in San Francisco or Oakland. And nothing would be more tragic than for us to turn back on facing the issue of systemic racism and poverty. But not only that, we have to address the war economy and militarism Because every time somebody asks, where can we get the money to do right by the poor? It's in the military and militarism. At the height of the Vietnam War... The military was spending three, $354 billion. Today, we're spending $668 billion. While anti-poverty programs only receive $190 billion. 53 cents, And if Trump and his, his warmongers have their way, it's going to be 62 cents of every discretionary dollar will go to war. While only 15 cents goes to anti-poverty program. And they're trying to cut that as well. By 2023, the goal is to to so otherize the poor that only 12 cents of every discretionary dollar goes to the poor. Nothing would be more tragic than for us to turn back now and to fight for humanity and for who's who's included. We must resist being silent on the issue of otherization and who's going to be included. We have spent nearly 5.6 trillion dollars in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, it's $5.6 trillion. And yet, everybody, when they talk about how we're going to fund healthcare, we're going to have to raise taxes. No, if we would stop funding so much death, we could fund life. And the majority of what we're funding now are military contractors, not even our soldiers. And military contractors earn an average of $19.2 million a year, the CEOs, while the average combat soldier only earns $30,000 a year, which means that even here in many places, they would be considered living in poverty. And in 2012, more military personnel died from suicide than the battlefield. And then there's this fourth interlocking injustice and evil that promotes and and fuels otherization. And that is ecological devastation. Fossil fuel and chemical and other industries are poisoning the air, the water. No, they're not. They're poisoning the air, the water, and the land closest to the most marginalized people. Let's be real about it. Now, eventually, if it gets in the air, it's going to kill everybody. It seems like they would know that. But Right now, an estimated 9 million premature deaths occurred worldwide in 2015. Three times as many deaths from AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria coming from poisoning our environment. Water pollution alone kills 1.8 million people a year around the world. And in the U.S., 13.8 million low-income houses cannot afford water. And while we talk about Flint and should and the governor should go to jail, right under the jail for what they really did. But the reality is 4 million families get up every day and they can buy unleaded gas and can't buy unleaded water. And the 20 counties with the highest percentage of households lacking access to plumbing are all rural counties and 13 of those counties are majority Native American and Alaskan Native population. It is the policy of otherization Kill them! Poison them! And nothing would be more tragic than for us to turn back now on fighting for full humanity and who will be included. And then, not only do we have that 37 million people, even with the Affordable Care Act, are without health care. Do you know that, what that translates to? When you, 5,600 people die for every 1 million that are denied health care, that's 24 people every hour. That's policy murder. Because all the people in the Congress that are fighting people getting health care free get free health care. Uh-huh. By virtue of being elected. And I, for, for the life of me, I just can't believe that when they were born, their mama looked at them and picked them up and said, God, I thank you for giving me a child that will keep other folk from having health care. God, I, I just thank you. I am so glad that you let me have this child that will help other people die. It's the most blessed thing in the world, Lord. Thank you. Where did folk become so sickened in their spirit? And we must fight not against our fellow citizens, but against the systems and the evils that are destroying them in hopes that even some of them will be transformed. In my my days, there are days I pray for Trump. Because if a man could do this much foolishness with lies and hate, how much good could he do with truth and love? I mean, I really do. I don't want to other nobody. I believe in the possibility of everybody's redemption. If it never happens, I have to believe it. And that's why I can't fight you like you fight me, because I can't become what I hate. You hear what I said? And then, lastly, oh yes, there's this fifth. There's this fifth thing that really fosters otherization, and that is the false and distorted narrative of Christian and religious nationalism. Lord, have mercy, huh? When you have these people claiming they're speaking on behalf of God and they say so much about what God says so little and so little about what God says so much. Let me give you all a newsflash. Ain't no such thing as Christian right or Christian left. You either Christian or you ain't. It's kind of like being pregnant. And, and, And you don't get to choose. You don't get to choose what the ethic is. You don't just get to say, well, this is the Christian right. If you call it Christian, you got to run by Jesus. Uh, and Jesus was clear about his public policy agenda and he ain't no Republican and he's not a Democrat but I heard him in the Bible Oh Lord, I'm ready to have a Bible conversation. Because Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for He hath anointed me to preach good news to the poor. In Greek, that's patokos. It means those who've been made poor by the economic and just systems in this world. That's what he said at the beginning of his life. And at the end of his life, he said, I'm gonna judge every nation. America, Afghanistan, Egypt, uh, South America. I'm gonna judge every nation. How? When I was a stranger, an undocumented worker, did you welcome me? When I was sick, did you heal me? When I was hungry, did you feed me? When I didn't have any water, did you contaminate it, or did you give me something to drink? And it's high time that we call much of this stuff what it is. Modern day heresy. Whenever you have Ministers, so called ministers, who will go and pray for any president, P R A, that, why that president, while that president or senator is praying, P R E Y I N G, on the very people that God says he cares the most about or she cares the most about, you are engaged in a lie and theological malpractice. And so these five interlocking injustices and evils that promote and feed off of otherization. In order to address them, we believe that we had to launch the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. Notice we didn't say another organization. We don't need another organization. We need an organism where all of us can come together and do some things together. I know we got our silos, but every now and then, there's a time comes in the nation, we must join together in a moral fusion and understand the interlocking injustices and we meet that with a moral fusion intersectional response. And that's why we've come together black and white and brown and native and Asian and gay and straight and young and old and people of faith like Christians, Jews, Muslims, Hindu people not of faith but who believe in the moral arc of the universe and we must stand together to say that America's future depends on yet another revolution. Not just another election, even though that election is important and it may be a part of the revolution, but we need a movement of the people committed to reconstructing democracy and guaranteeing equal protection for every human being, rooted in deep love and deep truth. That's why the Poor People's Campaign now, we have 41 Co- coordinating committees in 41 states and District of Columbia. That's why last year we launched and over 5,000 people put their bodies on the line in 41 states and District of Columbia and were arrested as the launch. That's why thousands joined and millions by video. That's why right now they're 28 bus tours going on across this country with AP and the press embedded where they're going into where the people are, the hurt people, not people talking about the people but letting the people talk about themselves. That's why in June I want some of you all to come to the Poor People's Moral Action Congress where we're going to release a constitutional justice poverty budget and also an agenda. If the other folk got CPAC telling lies, we need PMAC to tell the truth. That's what it is. PMAC. P-P-M-A-C. And then after PMAC, we're going to go back and be a power. We're trying to shift this narrative, and we can do it together. The statistics tell us, I was looking at them just last night from a, a magazine from Prospect, that more people believe in the things we believe in than we know believe in the things we believe in. But we need a sounding in the valley, because people are depressed and we need to go in the valley and cry loud with a movement so that the dry bones can get up and we can all joined together. And so next year on June 20th, 620, we're calling for a poor people's mass, poor people's assembly, and moral march on Washington, where we want thousands of people to come, and when they get there, we're going to give the stage away to the people impacted by racism and impacted by poverty and impacted by ecological devastation so that Americans can see themselves. Trump didn't win the election. He lost by 4.5 million votes. He got in because of a racist electoral college, but he also lost because a hundred million folks stayed home because they don't ever hear anybody talking about the real issues that impact their lives. Well, it's time for us to change that. And the politicians can't change it. They never have. You have to have a movement that changes the political climate and gives the politicians courage to make the adjustment. Yes, as the Constitution says, we must alter this government and we must do it until living wages and guaranteed protections from the poor are not seen as a Bernie issue or as the mayor's issue or as any one candidate's issue, but as a moral issue. That expanding voting rights and transitioning away from fossil fuels and guaranteeing labor rights and affordable housing and fair policies for immigrants and critiquing warmongering and equality in education by guaranteeing every child receives a high-quality, well-funded, diverse public education and health care for everybody and fairness in the criminal justice system and fighting the proliferation of guns and blocking the unholy alliance that the NRA has on our policies and fighting for women's rights and LGBTQ rights and Demanding that equal protection under the law is non-negotiable. These are moral issues. And so as I close, this is what those who struggled before us fought and died for. It's not new. It's just our time. And we have more than they have when they fought. So we ought to be better. So hunt your neighbor and say, crying time is over. It's movement time. Yeah. And I know we're headed into Holy Week soon, so I need to preach a little bit. Put that time card down. I'll be through in just a second. I didn't fly five hours and bend my hip up not to finish what I had to say. Oh, Lord. 2,000 years ago, out on the edge of what was called the Roman Empire, filled with greed and oppression, violence and narcissistic leadership. 2,000 years ago there was a leader on the throne who loved to put his name on buildings and said that he and he alone could save the whole world. His name was Trump, I mean Caesar. Oh God. And uh and at that time, a brown-skinned Palestinian Jew named Jesus started a poor people's movement. He called people together. He said, oh, everybody, he said, my house shall be a house of prayer for all people. He called together the rejected, He he those rejected by the political establishment, those rejected by the religious establishment, and he blessed them. And through the centuries, a lot of people have tried to make Jesus into a lot of things, but, but we're here together, and I'm here because in my faith, I've learned that through Jesus and through the other prophets and through the various religious faiths that the world doesn't change when powerful people get new ideas. The world changes when people who've been rejected come together and realize that they are blessed to show their neighbors that another world is possible. Change happens when those who have been otherized decide we ain't taking it no more. <sighs> yeah. I've been traveling across this country for the last two years from the Bronx to the border, from Appalachia to Aberdeen, the deep south, the California coast, and it's become clear that people are ready to come together that have been otherized. We've heard from mothers whose children died because their states refused Medicaid expansion. They're ready to come together. We've met with homeless families whose encampments in Aberdeen, Washington, and other places have been attacked by police and militia groups. They're ready to come together. We've visited communities where there's raw sewage in people's yards, and nine-year-old children need CPAC machines to breathe because of the mold on their parents' houses, and they're ready to come together. We've been welcomed into the, the area communities of Appalachia. White people and indigenous families and urban African Americans and Latinx have formed unlikely alliances, have, are singing and protesting and organized together. And, and, and we are seeing something happen across this country. There's a whole group of people that are saying we coming out the closet. We're tired of being on the margins. We're tired of being ignored, and we are no longer going to be otherized. We refuse it, and we believe that a movement is happening, and we can build it together. There's a song that says, "Oh, beautiful for pilgrim feet, whose stern and passion stress a thoroughfare for freedom's beat across the wilderness." America, America, God mend that thine every flaw. We got some flaws to mend, y'all. There's some stuff wrong in America. And there's no way to mend the flaws of this nation and be one nation under God with liberty and justice for all unless the rejected people are at the center. I've heard a lot of people say we've never seen anything like this before, this Donald Trump. Well, you don't remember Woodrow Wilson. You don't remember a whole lot of other folk down through history, Nixon and even before then, who were just as racist and wrong as Trump. Uh, before before Breibach was in the White House, Birth of a Nation was played in the White House in 1914. We've seen this before, and because we've seen it before, we know what beats it. We know what overcomes it. It's when moral fusion coalition, we come together, discovering our common humanity, we link arms together, and we refuse to be denied. One of my favorite. Passages of scripture is the one in Psalm 118 that says the stones that the builders rejected can now become the chief cornerstones. In other words, the scripture says when God wants to produce a revival, he goes to the rejected. And I bet you in this room, there are some people here who've known rejection. Am I right about it? I need about 25 of y'all to make your way to the stage if you're known rejection. Some of you been rejected because of your sexuality. Come on and come on up here. Some of you been rejected because of who you love some of you been rejected because of how you were born. Some of you been come on around the other side, some of you been rejected because of your Palestinian ancestry, because of you been rejected because somebody needed somebody to hate in order to try to feel good about themselves. Aren't there some folk in this room who've known rejection? You've been rejected because of your income, you've been rejected because of your faith, you have been rejected because of your race, where are you? You've been rejected because of your lack of faith. You've been rejected because because somebody decided in their own ugly ideology that they had a right to demean your humanity and you've been rejected. But I want you to know in San Francisco at 4.45 p.m. I want you to know that tonight Today the stones that the builders rejected are coming together to build a new cornerstone here in America. I want you to know that today when hands that once picked cotton join Latino hands and join progressive white hands and join faith hands and join labor hands and join Asian hands and join Native American hands and join poor hands and join wealthy hands with a conscience and join gay hands and join straight. Hands and John Trans hands and John Christian hands and Jewish hands and Muslim hands and Buddhist hands. When we all get together, when the rejected. Join hands together. We can turn this nation around. We can turn this nation. We can alter the course of history. Together, we will make sure that hope, not hate, has the last word. Together, we will ensure that all of God's children are taken care of. Together, together, together we will make sure that nobody is invisible in this world. Together, can I preach for five minutes? Yes. I know the power of getting together. Because when Moses and the people that had been rejected got together and his rod got together, Pharaoh came down and the Red Sea had to open up. When Esther and her uncle Mordecai got together the, and the, the rejected, they were able to stop the plots of a mean narcissistic leader in her day. When David was overlooked by Samuel, but when he and his slingshot got together with his faith, Goliath fell. And the next day, the San Francisco Chronicle read, the bigger they come, the harder they fall. When Shadrach, Meshach, and that bad Negro got together, way down in the fiery furnace, God blessed them and God brought them out of the fiery furnace. The truth is, when we who are rejected have come together, we've never lost we might have been beaten, we might have been broken but justice has never lost I didn't say it. justice had never been fought and justice had never been hurt, but it's never lost. During slavery it looked like justice had lost but when Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass and some white Quakers and white evangelicals got together, they formed a movement and brought about abolition when women didn't have the right to vote it was Sojourner Truth, a black woman and Elizabeth Cady Stater and Lucretia Mott and Frederick Douglass when they got together, women won the right to vote. Plessy versus Ferguson looked like it had the victory. But when Thurgood Marshall got white lawyers and black lawyers and Jewish lawyers and an all white Supreme Court, one member, a former member of the KKK, but when they got together, they had to vote 9-0. to That separate but equal was unconstitutional. It looked like Jim Crow had been beaten down. Injustice couldn't rise again. But when Rosa Parks and Martin King and Bayard Rustin, who was gay, and Glenn Smiley and Jonathan Daniels and a white woman named Viola Woosa and so many others got together. They tore Jim Crow down. And 26 years ago... When the doctor said I would never walk together, because for 12 years I was on a walker and in a wheelchair. But when my faith got together and my doctors got together and my pharmacist got together and my therapist got together and my family got together and the prayer warriors got together, good God Almighty, yeah. because when we all get together, what a day! Yeah. What a day! What a day! What a day! What a day day of justice it will be.